If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Well, here we go with another podcast from your good friends, your, in fact, your very best friends at Books of the Year. Yes. There's me, there's Matt, and there's a, someone on a strimmer. Is that you? <laughs> that is someone. That, so, the, so we should mention this right at the start, is that they are currently doing some... Uh, so my uh, house is not far from a cemetery, and they are currently cutting the grass at the cemetery and obviously using strimmers. So I actually really like the sound, but my wife really hates it. Um, but I, I, it sort of it makes me think, well, it is still summer, isn't it? It's still gorgeous. It's really nice and sunny here. I'm sure it's the same with you, Simon. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. But my windows are closed because I'm prepared to suffer for the art. I don't... <laughs> you know, come on. Well, get you with your suffering. Anyway, we should me. say that today's podcast is brought to you in association with our good friends at Oliver Spencer, menswear designer who combined classic quality... <laughs> With modern styling. Modern styling, really? Yes, wow. yes, yes. Uh, that, that's right. And the new autumn collection has landed at Oliver has Spencer, it? featuring rich autumnal hues and a mm. diversity of fabrics, including lots of organic cotton and ecological wool. It's available online <laughs> and in-store now. Shut up. So, no, no. Oh, so talk, talk me through ecological wool. How's, how's the wool ecological? It's wool. I mean, obviously, it comes from a sheet, doesn't created it? I mean, with concern for the environment, something oh, really? that it will be news to you. Anyway, available wow. online and in store yes. now at Oliver yes. Spencer, who had I, known nothing about the, their support for this no, program. This is going to come as a complete mm. surprise. And, and, and the podcast also brought to you by, you know, Simon, people are always asking me, they're saying, Matt... How do you manage to juggle being such a great guy with having a fabulous garden? And when, I, when, those yes. pe- when those many people say that to me, I say, well, it's very simple. I go to Cruise Hill Garden Centre with my wife, and uh, she then uh, picks the plants, uh, buys the plants, and plants the plants, and then waters the plants. But I go into the well-apportioned uh, um, cafe there and have a hot chocolate with... Uh, with sprinkles and marshmallow and whipped cream and do the crossword. And that is how I managed to juggle being such a great guy with having such a fabulous garden. Cruise Hill Garden Centre, they serve very nice hot chocolates. Hello, Alistair. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Well, um, basically, because we're a little bit short of uh, advertisers at the moment. So what we're doing is we're just mentioning products that we like in the hope that it comes back to them and then they, in turn, sponsor the podcast. Oh, so you mean you're telling me that I'm doing this without any listeners and nobody to promote? No. <laughs> yes! No. <laughs> a waste of my time. I'm a very busy man. First point, Alistair, is thank you very much indeed for making some time available uh, yeah. to speak to us. Um, and uh, we have uh, lots to discuss. And I thought this book was astonishing. I mean, it is, it's, it's on the one hand, incredibly readable, but it is... Uh, it feels like a full meal, you know. At the end, there takes a lot, a long time to work, work, uh, work your way through the issues and some of the ideas 
uh, that you've thrown at us. Just tell us what the insti- I mean, it's quite obvious is, as long as people get to at least the preface in your book, they'll know why you wrote it. But just explain the, the circumstances under which you came to write this. Well, I think it's complicated why you write a book. I mean, I was counting them the other day. This is my 16th book since I left Downing Street in 2003. And I think the motivations are quite complicated on this one. I mean, the practical answer to the question is that I did a TV documentary for the BBC. And as you know, as a broadcaster, lots and lots and lots of really interesting stuff that you research and you do, it doesn't make it because an hour's telly is like, you know, a chapter of a book. So I had all this stuff. I thought, well, I don't want to waste it. So then I started to kind of package that into something. Meanwhile, I'm involved in this campaign, this broader campaign about trying to get people to think about mental health and talk about mental health and governments to act about mental health in a different way. And then I thought, well, I know what publishers are like. They'll only really go for a book on this if I make it personal. So that's what I did. Um, so it's kind of half is my life, and then the second half is trying to find other ways of, of tackling depression to the ways that I've tried. And, and I hope in that second half, come up with lots and lots of things that have, some of which have helped me and hopefully lots of them will help other people. In the preface, uh, you say, on a dark Sunday night last winter, I almost killed myself. Almost. I had a lot of almosts. Never gone from almost to D. Don't think I ever will, but it was a bad almost. Bad. That I didn't go through with it had a lot to do with a jam jar. It's a long story. I'll start at the beginning. I certainly want to get to the jam jar. Uh, could you uh, explain your the, the scale, Alastair, that you that you talk about the scale of judging each day one to ten? Well, a lot of people think I've got this the wrong way around, but I've always had it this way. One is bliss, and a kind of unattainable bliss, really. So I never really acknowledge one, uh, other than as a sort of fantasy. And ten is suicide. So I don't acknowledge 10 either. So nine is the worst I ever get in my own scale. And that was a nine. That was, we were up in Scotland and I just had this absolutely, I can't even describe it, sort of catatonic plunge. Um, And I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there where I was with the people I was with, having a, you know, what on the surface seemed a very nice time. And I didn't want to be there full stop. So I sort of vacated and went away and just found a quiet place and, I didn't wait till it passed, but I wait till everybody else had gone to bed. And then I could sort of just, you know, slink back in. Um, so that was when it's, that, that was that particular mood. I've not had anything, well, I had one a bit like that not long ago, but that, that was a really bad one. That was a really bad one. Are you, and you talk about when you wake up, you look at the ceiling, and I think you see just off to the left, you, you're a, if it's going to be bad, or if, if there's a depression coming on, that you actually, you see a dark grey cloud. It's, it's actually there. It's like a physical thing. That passage in the book, because I think one of the hardest things for people who get depression is to explain what it's like when you're not depressed. Because when you're depressed, you're not very good at explaining things anyway because you don't really want to talk and it's very tiring and what have you. When you're not depressed, you can't remember it terribly well where you can sort of vaguely remember it. So that, that passage where I'm trying to describe it, that is really for people who don't understand depression. And I'm not saying this is what all depressions are like, because most people will have different experiences, but mine often does have this almost physical sensation to it. And it often, not always, but often it is when I wake up. And when I wake up is when I give myself that mood, one out of ten, you know, one fantastic ten death. And as long as I'm sort of, you know, the right side of, the left side of five, as it were, I'm okay. 
But when I'm over that line, I sort of wake up and, and yeah, it's like this, I can't, it's like a jelly. And it's, it's like, it's oval. It's the shape of a rugby ball, but it's bigger than a rugby ball. And it gets bigger as it gets nearer. And I sometimes talk to it and tell it to, you know, tell it won't get near me this time. And then it does. And, and, and then it's like a physical sensation of your body, your mind and your body just kind of filling up with this, like a gunge, but, it, but it's very, very heavy. And you, you, you suddenly feel like you're kind of, you've got lead going through your veins. And, and then when it's, once it's all in, then you've, you've sort of had it for a while. And, um, and it also has a very physical sensation often for me. I mean, I, interestingly, I've had a few people who got in touch about this. this I, I describe this, this lead taste in my mouth. Um, and you know when you've got a cough and you suck on a sweet to try and get a bit of saliva going? Yeah. You're kind of doing that automatically, almost involuntarily, but it tastes like lead. Or, you know, I've never eaten lead, but, you know, what I imagine lead to taste like. Very metallic, very kind of dark, horrible taste. And you spit and you brush your teeth and nothing really gets rid of it. And then the other thing that happens with me, and this is what people who live with me notice, my voice goes very weak. Um, I suddenly sound a lot weaker. Um, so there's definitely a kind of physical as well as a man- mental thing going on when, when, when the cloud comes in. Would it be impertinent to ask what score you gave today? Not at all. No, happily. I mean, if I'm going to put myself out there, then, you know, part of doing this is I want to kind of normalise these sorts of conversations. In fact, prior to you, I was talking to a management podcast and we came up with this idea that every workplace should ask people every morning, one out of one to ten, how do you feel mentally and physically? I think that would be a great conversation starter. We do it physically, don't we? We say, how are yeah. you? Oh, I've got a bit of a cold. I've got a sore knee, done my back, whatever. We never say, how are you? Oh, I'm, you know, thought about killing myself last night. So uh, this morning I was about 3 point, no, probably probably 4. four. I said 3.8 is what I told myself, but um, as the day's gone on, I realised I'm not. I'm 4. Uh, j- just one other point, just before uh, Matt comes in. Uh Normally, I think the age of the person we're speaking to is supremely irrelevant. But it seems to me the fact you're 63 is significant, given your family history. I just wonder if you could explain a little bit uh, about about that, Alistair. Yeah, well, I was the third of four, uh, two older brothers and a younger sister. And if I'd have been a girl, I would never have been born. Well, I would have been born, but I'd have been a girl because my mother was just desperate to have a daughter. Uh, and my two older brothers uh, both died age 62. Uh, Donald, my older brother, he, was, um, he had schizophrenia. And schizophrenia, if you've been on antipsychotic drugs for as long as he was, uh, can have a very, very detrimental effect on your physical health uh, and does take, on average, about 20 years off your life. And I think it's one of the scandals of our approach to mental illness that we tolerate that, that we know that happens, and yet we sort of, you know, the research doesn't really go into improving it. So Donald died uh, four years ago now. He was 62. And my second brother, Graham, he died uh, more recently, and he was also 62. Uh, and he, again, was, I think, had undiagnosed mental health conditions. He was, uh, I think he was a depressive. Um, he would never acknowledge it. He was uh, a bit of a... Bit of a wanderer, a bit of a loner, um, 
didn't have the had you know just as bright as any of us and had lots of talent capacity for languages very clever very amazing memory but never really made the most of of uh, of his abilities and didn't look after himself so he was you know a heavy smoker for a lot of his life quite a heavy drinker for a lot of his life um in fact when he had double amputation of his legs shortly before well a few months before he died and uh, he accurately said as he was being wheeled into the theater my sister and i were with him and he said here we go one for the booze and one for the fags and i'm afraid i think that's there's a there's some truth in that and then my sister's uh, she's the youngest. She's not yet sixty-two. Um, so when when I made it through to sixty-three, there was uh, yeah, it, it sort of felt like I'd I'd achieved I'd passed the milestone. Yeah. I've, I found this. I've got to say, Alistair, uh, it was it's an honest book. Um, it's um, very insightful, um, not least into mental health, but also into you. And there was one thought I had as I was. As I was reading this book, and it um, recalled to me a, a book I've not picked up in about um, thirty years. Now, what I'm about to say, I am, I am aware, is not going to be an original thought. However, I can I read in your book you've you've listed your resentments, and amongst those resentments is people thinking they're being original when they're saying something they've often heard before. <laughs> okay, so prepare yourself, grit your teeth, because I'm about to say something I'm guessing you have. Now, am I right? Did you did you? Because I, I I wasn't sure about this, but as I read the book. It's, it suggested to me that you'd studied French at university. Is that right? French and German, yeah. French and German. Okay. So when this whole pandemic started, uh, a lot of yeah. magazines and newspapers um, came up with, look, we're all going to be stuck inside, so here are some books to read. And one of the books that they came up with, for obvious reasons, was The Plague by Albert Camus. Now, I've not read that. Right. I studied that. At, I, I studied French and Spanish at uni, and I right. studied that at A-level. And it's you know it's obvious why people would recommend it because it's about a uh, a plague outbreak in a in a town yeah. in Algeria, but obviously it's not about a, an, an outbreak. And basically the the point the, the the book itself is following the different characters in this town and seeing how they react to this outbreak. And some of them panic, some of them hunker down, some of them trying to finally find a cure, and others even try to profit from it. But undoubtedly, the hero at the centre of it, and as I've not picked the book up in 30 years, so I can't remember the name of the character, but it's a doctor. And the doctor just keeps going. He is the embodiment of what I, would, I believe is the most underrated human attribute, and that is grit. Resilience. The, the, oh, the grit, ability okay. to just... Yeah, well, exactly. It's pretty much the same thing. The ability to just yeah. keep going and Camus was basically saying this is heroic he is doing something highly ordinary but it is extraordinary it's obviously he's Ooh. not talking about the play he's talking about the human condition and it the reason why I started thinking about it apart from anything else apart from the environment in which we all find ourselves is um that conversation you have with your psychiatrist and it's on the proof copy it's quoted right on the front what's yeah. the effing point David I asked my psychiatrist the point of what life the point of life is to live it. And I, so really, this is a roundabout way of me saying, when it comes, what, what are your thoughts on grit, on that, th that attribute of just keep going, even though it's absurd, even though you feel there is no point to it, just keep putting one foot in front of another foot? Yeah, interestingly, I didn't see what David said, David Sturgeon, my psychiatrist, what he said in that context. I didn't see that as a grit point. 
I saw that as, is it great? No, he was basically saying there is no point to life other than what it says on the label, which is you have to live it. You have to live it to the best of your abilities. Now, that may or may not require you to have great resilience because some people enjoy their lives without feeling that it's a struggle. Now, life is a struggle for a lot of people. At times, I've found life a struggle. Um, But I felt he was saying something slightly different. Whereas I think what you're saying and what Camus was saying is that you kind of have to take on board all the shit that gets thrown your way. And even as it's being thrown at you, you kind of just have to keep walking in a straight line. Um, Now, I do try and do that. And I, I sometimes feel that my... I think I am quite a resilient character. And I think my resilience does in part come from the, the the survival of mental health struggles that I've had. I really feel that. I feel that I sometimes feel that if I didn't hadn't had my breakdowns, if I hadn't had my depressions, if I hadn't had the kind of awful shock of seeing my brother when he was first diagnosed and he was like it was like seeing a different person. Um if I hadn't had all that, I'm not sure I'd be I think I'm quite a strong character and I don't think I would be if I hadn't had that. It's interesting that because at a different point of the book, you have um, you've uh, had an interview with a with a journalist. They've written a profile about you, and one part they say is that you know Alistair has had this successful career despite a history of mental ill health. Mm. And you sort of have a chat with him afterwards and say, actually, you could you could make a strong argument that it is in in part because of a mm. history of mental ill health, which is basically what you, what you were just saying. There. And, I, and I really believe that. I really do believe that. I mean, I, I think of, you know, even, even the things that we're talking about, about the, having the scale. I only have that scale because I've kind of known what it's like to be at either end. And that helps me to get myself into the right place or closer to the right place when I'm too near to either of those ends. Now, sometimes I don't succeed, but I've never been at 10. I've never taken my own life. And I... I don't allow myself to go to one and I've got enough, even when I'm manic, I've got enough control um, or I've got the systems in place to have the control to keep me from going, you know, so far off that I'm going to do things that some people do when they're really, really manic. Like, you know, I had a friend who once who, who, who honestly thought he could fly and he tried to get out of an aeroplane as it was moving. Um, ended up getting arrested for his pains. So, you know, you have, I think that comes from knowing that struggle and, you know, I, I quote, often I quote this guy, Nasser Gamey, and he wrote a book about uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, and before anybody thinks I'm getting really grandiose, I'm not putting myself in the league of Martin Luther King. But he did make the point that Martin Luther King was what we would today define as bipolar, manic depressive. And his theory was that Martin Luther King's depression gave him empathy and an understanding of the pain of the human soul and why racism caused so much hurt to so many people and how that affected their lives and the health of the country and his mania gave him the the energy the charisma the ability to hold a crowd in the palm of his hand the ability to mobilize and inspire and i i i feel that i feel that the qualities that that i have a lot of them come from the different levels of energy and understanding that i get at either end of my scale can you spot other people in trouble, Alistair? 
Yes, uh, obviously not automatically, but I, I think that um, I think depressives have an eye for each other. I can always spot them in a crowd. If I'm doing a talk, I mean, there haven't been any talks with this book for obvious reasons for COVID, but I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of talks in my time. And especially if I'm talking about mental health, I can spot it. There's something, I, you know, I said earlier the thing about, about my voice going a bit weak if I'm depressed. Something happens to my eyes as well. Fiona notices it in my eyes straight away. And I can sometimes, I think, notice it in other people. And so, yeah, I think there's... And one of the good things that's happening, actually, is that, is that, you know, now that there are more and more people that are starting to be a bit more open, there's almost, there is like a kind of community that, that is developing. I mean, I regularly now say I'm on a bus or a train or just going out walking the dog or something. You know, people will come up and just talk to me and say, oh, I get really bad depression or, you know, my father killed himself or whatever it might be. There's just an openness now if they know that you're open. And I think I think that gives a lot of people a lot of relief because, you know, for most of our lives, that openness has not existed. But, yeah, I, I think I can spot people uh, pretty well. You hear people say sort of glibly, I don't want to listen to the news anymore because it makes me depressed. And what they mean is mm. they don't want to listen to the news because it's full of bad news and it make, makes them sad. But if you suffer mm. from depression with a capital D, do you, as someone, Alistair, who's been steeped in the news and politics all of his life, do you ever not listen or watch the news because it will make your depression worse? I don't know if it... Listen, I barely listen to the news now. Um, we don't get newspapers delivered at home. Uh, Fiona has The Guardian and The Times and the FT on her phone. She sort of tells me what's in them. I still get the Labour Party media monitoring brief, even though I was kicked out of the party. I say in the book that on my scale... Politics can have a very detrimental effect on it. Brexit does my head in. Johnson does my head in. Trump does my head in. Now, that doesn't mean that you're absolutely right. That's not the same as depression. But it does mean it can have a disproportionate effect on my mood when my mood is not good. And um, and also, you know, you, you both obviously read the book uh, carefully. And I think you, you may remember the, the point where my psychiatrist, David, he is absolutely convinced that when we talk about my demon, which I always used to think was the demon drink, he says my demon is this inability to have, to resist being pulled into big political situations, even though I know they might do me harm. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I was, <laughs> as I was writing it, I was 80% of my time I was devoting to the People's Vote campaign. Um, so he maybe had a point. Yeah. I was reading... Um, a, a section, the section where you're f- describing, which we've discussed already, that, that where you physically, how depression affects you from a physical point of view, and you were talking mm. about the cloud and uh, and everything. And I thought I got a clearer understanding about what it must be like through reading that section. And I, I don't think I've read anything quite so clear as and it's obviously a completely different discipline. But when J.K. Rowling wrote about the Dementors in Harry Potter, and yeah. she explained how they sucked the joy out of people and how yeah. you, ne- you thought you would never, ever be happy, happy again. And then she explained how that was based out of her experience of depression, which, which for me in like children's literature was an astonishing creation. But I felt the same reading this book, Alistair, that if you, you felt as though we were in the room with you when you were sharing what it was like. So does that mean we can put on the paperback 
the J.K. Rowling of depression book, <laughs> Simon Mayo. Can we do that? Is that yeah. <laughs> um, well, like you say, it's difficult to explain to if, if people haven't... It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard to explain. And, you know, even when I was describing to you the jelly and the oval, the rugby ball and all that, it's a bit of a composite because, for example, the last time that I had a bad bout, it wasn't like that at all. It was like a, it was like a very sudden crash after a really quite prolonged manic spell. Um, it was very, very sudden. It was almost instant, and that, and that's that's rare. But look, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. Do, can I take you from that that you don't get depression? No, I, I mean, mean, I don't. Not in the way that you describe it. No. So, 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 but when you said, you know, you've got a better sense of what it's like, all I can do is give you a better sense of what it's like for me. Yeah. Other people, you know, you get people who say it's like, you know, normally you feel like you're plugged into the mains and suddenly somebody switches the plug off. Now, I understand that, but that's, it's not like that for me. It's, it's because I, 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 I make the point that I, it, when, it's, when I'm really depressed, I feel dead and alive at the same time. I'm very alive in lots of different ways. And in some ways, I'm even more alive than normal because I'm, I'm probably more sensitive to, the, to a lot of things. But I don't feel unplugged from the world. I might feel the world is a difficult place, but I don't feel unplugged. Other people will talk about, you know, about how they, almost like they, they, they have this sense of invisibility that they're kind of, they can walk around, but it's like they don't feel they're connecting with anybody. Nobody's even seeing them. So people get very different senses of what it is. But one of the things I really, really wanted to do with the book uh, was to describe it non-fiction, because I've done this in fiction before, but to try and do it in non-fiction actually is a lot harder um, because you don't feel it when you're writing it. Because if I was really, really, really depressed, I wouldn't be writing. I'm I'm interested, Alistair, in um, your the impact your um, mental ill health has on those around you. And you in the book, you have a chapter written by Fiona talking yeah. about what it's what is what it's like to live with you. But I'm I'm also interested in in the sort of the wider impact of of um, of how you are. And I suppose the best way of illustrating that is that I used to so. Um, Obviously, both me and Simon used to work at BBC, or Simon yeah. still does, but I, I left. And I, I remember working in uh, the newsroom at the BBC, and I, you and I have never spoken before, but I was sat next to an editor, who obviously I'm not going to name, and I'm not going to name the programme either, but he received a phone call from you. And I, could, I didn't know it was you until he put the phone down, but I could see a... F- physically the blood draining from his face as he was talking to you because you clearly were unhappy about uh something that had been in the program and i wonder whether you bluntly whether you would recognize the impact that you had on other people's mental health sometimes in the way in the way that you that that, that you would react with them mm. was it in 1994 it was in the late 90s. Okay. So were we, were we in government rather than opposition? You were. Okay. The only time I can remember doing that and afterwards feeling, oh, that was ridiculous and over the top, was actually when we were in opposition once and it was the world at one. Um, so... Well, it's, I don't think it's important to say which show it was. No, no, no. But I'm just trying to, I'm trying to... I'm trying to grasp the sort of scale of it. Um, yes, I was aware of it. Um... And, you know, you mentioned Fiona's 
chapter in the book, and she talks in the book about how sometimes I, Tony Blair used to say this as well, I underestimate the power of my own mood sometimes. Mm. Um, but I felt in those circumstances that, with, with, particularly with the media that, you know, about whom we don't need to go over this, but I, I had a lot of complaints a lot of the time because I felt generally there was just a, a cultural change happening, which I'm afraid I think I've been borne out by, by the media we've got today and by the, the role that's played in giving us the politics we've got today. Um, but did I go over the top sometimes? Yes. Did I, as I was going over the top, pay sufficient attention to the possible impact that was having on other people? Probably not. Mm. Are there some shortcuts in this book, Alastair, for people who, let's say, they are going through a similar experience to the one, that, the ones that you outline, that they do feel their depression as a physical grey cloud or black cloud or black dog, whatever it is that they want to, whatever it is, however they want to characterise it. Are there some shortcuts, or does everyone have to go through? Their, I'm going to use the phrase journey, but does everyone have to work it out for themselves? Well, that's impossible for me to answer. Some people. Look, some people are really, really good at, at sort of picking up an idea from somewhere else and applying it to themselves. In my experience, um, my personal experience of myself and people very close to me, like my son Callum, who I write about in the book, who's a recovering alcoholic, I think that we both in our different ways had to hit our various rock bottoms at various stages of our life to understand the scale of change that we needed to make in our lives. Other people... I don't think it's quite as straightforward as that. I think other people can kind of adapt as they go. You know, what I've done in the, particularly in the second half of the book is for a lot of, a lot of people, I'm quite lucky. I, 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 I can travel around the world making TV programs. If I want to talk to a, a psychiatrist who's a specialist in ABC, I can phone them up and go and see them. What I've tried to do is to hoover lots of other people's ideas about things you can do as an individual to help, many of which have helped me, and say to people, who people are most of whom I will never meet, that they can pick up this book, dip in and out, and hopefully find something that's going to help them. Or, this is probably more common, somebody who is not ill finds something in there that they can then take to somebody who might be ill and help them towards applying it to their own lives. And I found that so helpful in my own, I mean, I'm with you, I don't like the word journey, but I know what you mean. I found that helpful. When, when I was recovering from my breakdown, I read voraciously about people who'd got over breakdowns. And, you know, you just, most of it, you've, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you now who they wrote the book or what they were about, or, but there were things in it day by day that for a while as I was recovering, I was just, I was just applying it to my own life. I remember one about a guy who said that, you know, he'd actually tried to take his own life. And uh, he said that when he was feeling suicidal, he used to go out and he could never say to himself, he never had the strength within him to say, I'm going to go for a 10-mile walk. <laughs> he used to go out and say, I'm going to walk to the next tree. And he'd walk to the next tree, and then he'd walk to the next tree, then he'd walk to the next tree, then he'd walk to the next tree, then he'd walk to the next tree. And I sometimes do that now. Now, that's an idea I picked up when I was 28. Um, and it stuck with me. So that's the sort of thing I think that, you know, we can all, we can all sort of, you know, hoover up ideas from other people. It, it, it's also worth saying just finally, Alistair, 
it, it's actually funny. Uh, uh, you know, even, even when yeah, it's not a misery memoir. <laughs> no, but but even though I think you described the incident in 1986 as you know uh, as your lowest point, you had a complete you had a complete meltdown. But then you you talk about getting your Taggart look, which you thought was oh, going to be a no. shortcut out of there. But I, and I found myself. I mean, I know you know the difference between tragedy and comedy is very thin. But even though you were going through this terrible thing, I did find myself laughing. Well, it was the funny of you and, doing and, your Taggart. No, well, well, well what, uh, uh, people who want to know that story was, in fact, I was talking to the guy, Chris Boffy, about it the other day. Um, because what happened was, when I was in hospital and I was absolutely convinced that it was some sort of Margaret Thatcher re education camp and I was being programmed to become a Tory, right? That's why I was there. And I couldn't say the word left or right. Uh, anything that was red or blue was freaking me out. I mean, I was really, really was away with the fairies. And I was convinced, for example, Des Lynham, when he came on to do the, the football results, I was convinced on the teleprinter that he was talking to me in code. And it was I was sitting there with pads all around me, East 5-3, uh, Beath 2, and I was doing anagrams and trying to relate that to, you know, Rangers against Hibs and Blackburn against Newcastle and all this crazy stuff. So the nurse came in and said, we've got a phone call for you. She wheeled in the phone. And it was a friend of mine called Chris Boffy. And anyway, we chatted away about this, that, and the other. Then he said, uh, he said, what are you doing tonight then? I said, well, I'm just lying in bed, you know. He said, you've got a telly? I said, yeah, I've got a telly. He says, I'm watching Taggart. I said, what's Taggart? I'd literally never heard of Taggart. He said, Taggart? You don't know what Taggart is? Taggart is a, this amazing drama about this Scottish detective with a smile carved out of granite. And I said, oh, thanks, Chris. And I put the phone down because I thought he was giving me the code to get out of the hospital or the re-education centre, as I thought it was. So what I did was I waited for Taggart to come. I watched Taggart. I waited for the smile. When he did the smile, and I, I knew straight away what he meant, this smile carved out of granite, I went to the bathroom. I rehearsed the smile. I went back to bed. I pressed on the bell to cause the nurse call the nurse in and I sat up there doing my Taggart smile and fully expecting her to say, well done, you've cracked it, you're out, you can leave, well done, instead of which she went and called the doctor and up, yeah. up, the, up the meds. <laughs> uh, uh, Alistair's um, book is, li is now called Living Better, uh, How I Learned to Survive Depression. It's new from Alistair Campbell. Uh, Alistair, we appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.